HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Dairy Farm Families of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Did you know that today Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheese that win more awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit eatwisconsincheese.com. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported, nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member now. Hello, this is Diane Stemple on Cutting the Curd on Heritage Radio Network. Today's book is a little unusual for the show. It's not about cheese or meat or beer, but it's a phenomenal piece of history. It's called The President's Kitchen Cabinet, the story of African Americans who have fed our first families from the Washingtons to the Obamas. Thank you for joining me, the author, Adrian Miller. Good to be with you. Excellent. So, Adrian, you have an interesting history yourself. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about it? It's a combination of food and politics. Yeah, I guess that's a nice way of saying I can't hold a job. But (laughs) (laughs) uh, I'm a lawyer by training, and I practiced law for about four years, and then um, I went into politics. And my first job was at the top. So I worked in the uh, Bill Clinton White House Mm -hmm. on something called the Initiative for One America. It was a racial reconciliation effort. And uh, it had a wild and crazy idea that if we just talk to one another and listen, we might realize that we have a lot more in common than what supposedly divides us. Mm -hmm. Crazy. Um, 
then I transitioned to state politics in Colorado, and I did that for a little while, and now I'm the head of the Colorado Council of Churches, which is a religious social justice organization. Mm-hmm. So the common thread is I'm always looking for ways to bring people together and do social justice work and mm-hmm. reconciliation work. Okay. And what about your food history? You're also, you have another food book as well as this one. Yeah. So the first book that I wrote was the uh, book called Soul Food, The Surprising Story of an American Cuisine, One Plate at a Time. And uh, it's a history of soul food. And I was uh, lucky enough to win the James Beard Award uh, for Outstanding Reference and Scholarship in 2014. For that That's book. great. Yeah. Can, can you tell us how you came to this topic? So it was actually while researching the soul food book. Unfortunately, while I was working in the White House, I never thought about the cooks. And I'm killing myself because I could have gotten so much food. Oh, yeah. You would have had the inner uh, roadway there. Yeah. But uh, while I was researching um, the soul food subject, as I was going through historical newspapers, these African-Americans who have cooked for our presidents just kept popping up in the research. Mm-hmm. So when I finished that um, book, I said, you know what, if I can find enough stories, I'd like that to be my next one. And again, thanks to a lot of old newspapers, I was able to identify about 150 people who have cooked for our presidents from Washington to the Obamas. Mm -hmm. That's the long list in the beginning of the book that's entitled African-American Presidential Culinary Professionals. Yes, I did a broad term because I wanted to include everybody who was mm-hmm. involved in food service, and roles have changed over time, so that's mm-hmm. why I kind of did it that way instead of just saying cooks. Okay, because there were some old-fashioned words that don't aren't really used anymore, I believe. Right, so for instance, the person who runs the entire White House domestic operations is now called the chief usher mm-hmm. um, instead of being called the steward. That mm-hmm. was the term in the, in the 19th century. And then uh, kitchen workers were called scullions. Oh. <laughs> yeah, back then. <laughs> and, and even the term White House executive chef didn't really exist until 1961 when Jacqueline, First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy created it. Um, mm-hmm. Before that, they were just called first cook or head cook or chief cook. Mm, okay. Now, just back to you for a moment. How did you become a Kansas City certified <laughs> barbecue society judge? Well, I thought that barbecue uh, would help me understand soul food better because so many soul food restaurants have a barbecue option, and so many barbecue restaurants run by African Americans okay. have soul food options on the menu, at least side dishes. Mm-hmm. So um, I went to the, uh, usually before a barbecue contest, they have a judge's class a couple of days before. So I went mm-hmm. in, walked in, there was about 75 people, and I was the only dude under 250 pounds. So <laughs> I knew that was my future. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, I learned more about barbecue, and uh, it actually has helped um, add dimension to what, what I think about soul food, so much so that I think barbecue is going to be my next book. Oh, it was cool. such, such a rich topic that I decided to delve into it separately. Okay. Uh, That sounds great. Now, how is it that there are so many African Americans in the White House kitchen? Well, part of it, it's it's several strands coming together. So the first thing is that um, for a lot of our presidents, uh, African Americans were their cooks and private Mm -hmm. servants. Already. Yeah, already. And so they were, they played that role in private life. And a lot of people don't know this, but before Harry Truman, our presidents had to pay for a lot of the servants and food themselves out of mm-hmm. their own pocket. Mm-hmm. So it saved money to bring somebody in, um, you know, who you've worked with before rather than hiring on the open labor market. Okay. Uh, and then quite a few were enslaved people because we've had several slaveholding presidents. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So, uh, but in the 19th and uh, 18th and 19th centuries, as well into the 20th centuries, cooking was a role that was assumed natural uh, for African Americans. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the few professions where African Americans could um, get a job, do well, and not suffer any white backlash. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it was just really kind of the the way that our society viewed African Americans as servants. Mm-hmm that led to a lot of people being in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And we have to understand that in the 1800s and early 1900s and so on, cooking was not the glamorous thing that it is now. Right. right. Um, it was seen as drudgery and menial work. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, we can't, you can't use the current lens to really look at how people felt about the kitchen back those day, in those right. days. Right. But you, you talk a lot about the prestige of working in the White House compared with the low pay. Yes. So uh, that's a chronic gripe throughout uh-huh. the ages. Uh-huh. Though it must have been pretty cool to be in the White House even with low pay ever. I- yeah, for most people. Um, there, there is one poignant uh, example that I have in my book where there is an enslaved cook for President Tyler who uh-huh. somehow gets interviewed, and he points out that he'd rather be free uh-huh. than the uh-huh. prestige. But, yeah, yeah. over, over yeah. time, that's uh, for most people who choose to be there, uh, yeah, that is definitely the trade-off. Right. Because, you know, you're, you're in a historic home. You're cooking for one of the most powerful people in the world. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if you have pride in your work, you want to do well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're hearing about things at the dinner table that must be pretty exciting. Yes. Unfortunately, there's this code of silence. Uh, oh, so they wouldn't so you talk really to you. don't really hear <laughs> a lot of that stuff. But we, mm-hmm. fortunately, there have been a couple of White House servants who wrote tell-all books. Uh-huh. And uh, we, we get some really, really good nuggets of information there. Uh-huh. Um, after they wrote their books, that's when the, the White House started having a uh, non-disclosure agreement <laughs> among the oh, workers. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so... I'm just wondering, uh, an odd question, who pays the uh, for the food in Mar-a-Lago? Oh, that's interesting. So, you know, we don't get a lot of information about the current administration. Right. But <laughs> Congress does a lot, an amount of money for uh, White House food, for right. presidential food. Okay. So what happens is, as purchases are made, they are billed against that account. Okay. And is the is it a reasonable amount of money now? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know the uh, round figure because, those, you know, you have to actually add together accounts from different agencies because mm-hmm. a lot of the money is moved around. Uh-huh. So we don't know exactly how much is spent. Okay. But, yeah, it's a decent amount of money. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's an amount where they shouldn't, you know, run out okay. unless they're having a lot of extravagance. <laughs> okay, because you talk a lot in the book about different economies and some some presidents being cheap and some head <laughs> cooks being cheap and and right. some wanting to spend 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 so right. it just never occurred to me to think of the white house having any sort of a budget it's mm-hmm. so you know it's so fancy right and you would just think, hey, the president can get whatever he or she wants whenever they want. Right, right? Exactly. exactly. That's not the reality. Okay. So where did you find all this information? Where did you do your research? So I did go to many of our presidential libraries. Mm-hmm. Um, That's what I was guessing. Uh-huh. And it was really hit or miss in terms mm-hmm. of what the presidential libraries had. If, if the archivists at the time didn't think that the White House kitchen was important, you really just don't get much. Okay. Um, same with the White House photographer. Uh-huh. But there are so it some, just depends uh, on who like found the, what interesting and what they brought into the library. Right. 
And there, there are some libraries that have been very good about uh, telling the food story. Like I would say the Carter Library, mm-hmm. uh, Jimmy Carter Library. For the most part, they've kept the residents' menus of mm. what he ate. Uh, wow. So if he was in town and you pick a date, you can pretty much find out what he had uh-huh. uh, for breakfast, lunch, or dinner. And sometimes you get <laughs> marginal notes from Rosalind Carter basically saying, oh, Jimmy doesn't like this or that. Oh, that's great. Now, yeah. this is all mostly pre-Internet research you're doing. Correct. So yeah. you have to get in the archives. Yeah, so it was old-fashioned. But the real boon for my research was uh, digitized historical newspapers from the Library of Congress and mm-hmm. a few private companies. Because mm-hmm. uh, these newspapers are word searchable. So once you figure out how the kitchen was discussed in those times... Mm-hmm. and the White House workers, then you get a lot of information. Okay, okay. Um, now, one thing I was thinking about was the difference between the public persona of the president and the private reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the trustworthy, trustworthy professionals really know the families on a day-to-day basis, but you say they didn't talk that much. No, uh, because one of the way, one of the fastest ways out of the White House was to be someone who had loose lips. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, so there was a, and there was a pride among the servants mm-hmm. and the cooks to ha- to maintain that confidentiality. Mm-hmm. Uh, because in many instances, we we see a deep affection between the president and the people on the residence staff. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's what you also your book tells a lot of very nice stories about very good relationships. Which right. one is your favorite? Uh, my favorite is the one between, and I know it was a contentious relationship at, th- at times, but the one between Lyndon Johnson and Zephyr Wright, uh-huh. who was the longtime cook for Lyndon Johnson before he even went into politics. Uh huh. Can you tell us a little bit more? Sure. So she gets hired. She's from Marshall, Texas. She mm-hmm. gets hired in the 1940s. She moves with the family to... Uh, to Washington as Lyndon Johnson starts his rise in politics. And back in those days, members of Congress would have other members of Congress over for dinner. Mm-hmm. Can you believe that? <laughs> and uh, they were, uh, a lot of people attribute Lyndon Johnson's rise to the dinners, the amazing dinners that Zephyr Wright would make. Mm. And uh, got a, he got a chance for him to meet people, and, it, and you know those relationships paid off later in his political career. Mm-hmm. But when he gets becomes president, he actually has... Zephyr Wright sit in the family box mm-hmm. with other members of the family. Mm. Um, and a really interesting story is that he used her Jim Crow experiences in the Deep South mm-hmm. to persuade members of Congress to support the 1964 Civil Rights Bill. Excellent. And when he signs that bill, he gives her one of the pins and says, you deserve this as much as anyone. Uh, that's great. Yeah, that's isn't that a great. great story? Yeah, that is nice. And did she appreciate the, you know heaviness of that well when you look when you read her oral history mm-hmm. she kind of shrugs it off uh-huh and i don't i don't know if that was just the mood she was in that day but, right um right she was more kind of i'm going to keep my head down and do my job okay yeah can you tell the zingerman story uh which led to your book yes so um i first uh, talked to Ari Weinzweig about doing an event at Zingerman's Roadhouse mm-hmm. in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And they have an annual African-American uh, dinner. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I was going to do something on soul food. And he happened to pick the day that President Obama was being inaugurated. Oh. And I said, you know, I, Ari, I've, I've just found all of these interesting stories about 
African Americans who have cooked for our presidents. Maybe we could do a program on that. Mm-hmm. And he agreed. And that's where I told my first stories about presidents, and it went really, really well. Mm-hmm. And that gave me the encouragement to really pursue doing a fuller book on the subject. Oh, that's neat. That's yeah. neat. We, we've had Ari on the show. And okay. he's, uh, he writes books on uh, business. Yes. <laughs> so everybody's got a different uh, sideline. Right. Now, many presidents, you say, I mean, so many things in the book I did not realize. Um, you talk about many, many of them were wealthy people with personal cooks. I mm-hmm. almost felt like the book is describing a Downton Abbey <laughs> environment because that's one of the only times I've seen, you know, the downstairs cooking and kitchen and whole big life and the upstairs rich people eating. Right. And isn't wasn't the kitchen downstairs or did they sleep downstairs or Yes. So the kitchen is in the basement of the White House. Mm-hmm. Um still? So well, I'm sorry. Still? Yes, yeah, still. Okay. Uh so it starts out it it's changed locations but it's always been in the basement. And this mm-hmm. is the main White House kitchen. Mm-hmm. And so in the early days the uh especially the enslaved cooks actually slept down their headquarters right off the main kitchen. So their world was in that basement. Mhm. And the White House kitchen, uh, that basement was not a pleasant place because, as you know, the White House is built in a reclaimed swamp area. Mm-hmm. And people were getting tropical diseases <laughs> in the 1800s. The White House basement would occasionally flood uh-huh. after really good rain. There was a lot of infestations at times of different critters. Uh. So, yeah, it was a challenging place to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and over time, additional cooking spaces get added in the White House. Mm-hmm. Um, after the 1952 renovation by President Truman, mm-hmm. a White House mess, uh, which is a Navy term for kind of a dining area, it's a nice clubby dining area for senior staff for the president, mm-hmm. uh, gets added. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's now staffed by Navy cooks. Okay. And then now, in now, was that where oh, you could have eaten when you were there? I, I could have once I got it to a certain position. And did you? I did. Okay, good. And let me tell you, the cheeseburger there is glorious. I don't know what it's like now, but when I was there, it was glorious. Now, and is it known to have other good food? Yes, they, I mean, they rotate the menu, mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. so I, I think different administrations are known for different things. I think George W. Bush was known to have, a, like, a Taco Thursday uh-huh. or something <laughs> like that. So they, they each take on their own vibe. Okay. Um, but one other thing I just wanted to mention is in 1961, um, Jacqueline Kennedy turns Margaret Truman's old base uh, bedroom into a space with a pantry and a kitchen so that the family could now eat on the second floor. Because mm-hmm. they used to eat downstairs in one of the bigger rooms, and she just felt that wasn't intimate enough for uh-huh. the family. Mm-hmm. And is that the kitchen that they can go in by themselves and get food, or is that a, another addition? Uh, it's another addition. So in terms of the food, usually there's a little elevator that's mm-hmm. brought up. Um, mm-hmm. And so they just to ask the servants what they need, and then that gets sent up to the, mm-hmm. the stairs to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, until the accessibility of the Obamas, I never thought about what the president was eating. Really? Yeah. Uh, well, what about with the state dinners? Were you just curious about state those? dinners? Yes, yes. But okay. that's a completely different arm, right? Yeah. That that has uh-huh. nothing to do with what you're talking about. Uh, not so much. I mean, certainly African Americans have helped with presenting the state dinners, but mm-hmm. I really wanted to tell the story of home cooking mm-hmm. in the White House. Right. 
right. where the African American presence was much more pronounced. Mm-hmm. And but isn't it? It's separate because they don't need. The state dinners are unusual, so don't they just hire occasional people for that, or is there a, a whole staff? Oh, yeah, so it depends on the presidency. Mm-hmm. But uh, in, in much of the 1800s, uh, well, let me say, before 1850, uh, the White House cook often did everything. So even the state dinners. But the state dinners were just for 36 people back then. Okay. It was a lot of hearth cooking. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there were some um, rudimentary stoves and things that they used. Um, by the time you get to the latter part of the 1800s, there was a trend of hiring French chefs from outside the White House to cater the state mm-hmm. dinners. Um, when you get to President Taft, they switched that and then had everything done in-house. Mm-hmm. So once again, you have the White House cooks doing everything. Okay. And it's pretty much been that case ever since. There may be a guest chef every once in a while, but the same staff is cooking the state dinners. And then depending on the size of the state dinner, they will hire additional staff oh, okay. to get everything done. Because the White House kitchen is quite small. Ah, okay. Yeah. Okay. We're going to take a break. Uh, first, I want to just announce to our listeners that, as you may know, this show is only possible thanks to member donations, and we would literally not be able to reach you every week without the generosity of HRN members around the world. It's our summer membership drive. I hope you'll join. I'll hope you rejoin, and you can find us on heritageradionetwork.org slash donate right now. Let's keep food radio on the airways this summer, and we'll be back soon. Today's program is brought to you by the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese, period. Why? Lush grasslands, glacial water supply, fourth-generation cheesemakers, combining old-world tradition with the new ideas and highest standards. The very best milk. What do you think of when you think of Wisconsin cheese? For me, I think cheese curds. Delicious, fresh cheese curds or deep-fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally any way, any time, any place. I think about Andy Hatch and Uplands Cheese Company, the operation behind the Pleasant Ridge Reserve cheese that's literally America's most awarded cheese. I think of the deliciously stinky Limburger and its long-storied history. I think about Raleigh's Dumbarton Blue, a perfect blend of English-style cheddar and notes of blue. I think of Emmy Roth's Grand Cru Chirchois, which was named 2016's World Champion at the World Championship Cheese Contest. Wisconsin is like the world champion of cheese, and once you start reading the list of cheeses made in Wisconsin on their website, you can see why. The Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board is a nonprofit organization funded entirely by Wisconsin's dairy farm families. Read more at eatwisconsincheese.com. And as soon as you're done listening to this podcast, eat Wisconsin cheese. It's a no-brainer. Hi, I'm Linda Liu, host of Feast Meets West on Heritage Radio Network. Feast Meets West traces the stories of your favorite Asian foods, from their origins to what they mean in today's food culture. Tune in on Wednesdays, 8 p.m. to hear my co-host Iris and I interview chefs, restaurateurs, and other food experts about Asian cuisine. Support my show and all of Heritage Radio Network's programming. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to become a member today. Hi. 
Hi, Diane Stemple back talking to Adrian Miller, who wrote The President's Kitchen Cabinet, which details the history of African Americans in the White House kitchen. Uh, Adrian, I'm wondering, um, another thing I didn't realize is how you talk about uh, the District of Columbia being so Southern. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so even today, well, I'm, D.C.'s changing quite a bit now, but um, even during my time there in the 90s, mm-hmm. it did have a Southern feel to it, mm-hmm. especially on the weekends. But uh, D.C. is carved out of two Southern states, two slaving states, actually, and um, it, it's interesting in its history because there was slavery within this district. Um, you could walk down the street, there could be slave auctions. Uh, there was actually a slave pen right near right where the, the site of the current U.S. Capitol building. Mm-hmm. Enslaved African Americans mm. built a lot of the buildings, including the White House. Mm-hmm. Uh, there would be slave coffles going through the streets. Um, so the, the, the visitors to D.C., especially foreign visitors, noted um, kind of the presence of enslaved Africans and African Americans uh, mm-hmm. in the city, mm-hmm. and um, so there's that part of the culture. But a lot, if you look at the newspapers, the restaurant scene, another thing, it was default Southern cuisine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you but know. you also talk about how there were more free uh, freed slaves in D.C. at a certain point than there were slaves. Yes, uh, because a lot of the surrounding slave states, once a enslaved person was in, was freed or manumitted, they didn't want that person hanging around in the state. Uh, they had to leave. Yeah. Okay. To others, so they were actually forced to leave, and so D.C. became a natural mecca mm-hmm. for a lot of free people to come, start businesses, and try to you know make something of their lives. Right. I read some of the nicknames. They called it Negra Mecca or Chocolate mm-hmm. City. Yes. Uh-huh. I didn't, you know, these are things you don't know. Yeah. <laughs> until uh, you read your book. Mhm. Um wow. So what's the connection between Jefferson's chef Hemings and Sally Hemings, Jefferson's mistress? So Sally Hemings was James Hemings' younger sister. Okay. Uh, so Sally Hemings had two older brothers, mm-hmm. and um, the uh, so James is the second oldest brother. Mm-hmm. Uh, the strong connection they have is when Jefferson becomes minister to France, he actually brings James Hemings over first, and has him trained as a uh, as a classical French chef. Mm-hmm. Spends a lot of money. To make that happen. Now, is that uh, because he has ulterior motives, or is that because he's being nice to Hemings' brother, or why? I don't think I. I don't. That's a good question. I don't know for sure. I just think he just had a need for a chef. Okay. Uh, and didn't want to pay somebody the prevailing wage. Okay, probably. so he took and a so slave. It, yeah, so he was he was thinking the long run, right? He's okay. like, well, I've got this young man here who, who I own. I'm going to tra- have him trained as a chef because not only will he cook for me here, mm-hmm. but he'll cook for me back in Virginia. Mm-hmm. But isn't life in Paris, learning how to be a chef, a, a pretty unique experience for anyone, much less a slave? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I would love to have learned more about James Hemming's life in his own words. Yeah. Because uh, oh. all we have really are just kind of Jefferson's spotty observations on the matter. Uh-huh. Um, and, most, uh, and then so Sally Hemings, as a young woman, comes with one of Jefferson's daughters 
over to France. And many believe that that's where the sexual relationship begins. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, the interesting thing is while both of the Hemings are over in France, France had something, uh, I think it's called the Freedom Principle, where if a third party advocated on their behalf, they could actually be freed mm-hmm. because they were on French soil and enslaved. Mm-hmm. But what Jefferson does is he starts paying both of them a wage similar to what other servants got in, in Paris at that time. Okay. So they, but they knew they were still slaves, or did oh, yeah. they? Yeah, they knew that. So oh, there but, was but he was kind of doing that. happened where okay. they mm-hmm. stayed under his employ. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but uh, yeah, but he was paying them, so mm-hmm. it was a very complex situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now, the interesting thing that happens when they return to the United States is that Hemings actually approaches Jefferson and asks to be freed, mm-hmm. and Jefferson agrees on two conditions: that one, he pay uh, that. Hemings teaches other enslaved people at Monticello how to cook, mm-hmm. and you know because Jefferson had spent all this money having him trained, right? And that too, that he would leave behind his recipes. Mm. And did he and agree? He, he did do that, and Jefferson freed him, okay. seventeen ninety six. Okay. Huh. So he used it. He used his training to get his freedom. He did. Okay. Now, he does eventually come back to Monticello for a short period of time uh, to cook. Mm-hmm. And most certainly, if he, uh, he ends up uh, drinking himself to death before uh. Jefferson becomes president. But I guarantee that if, uh, they had, if they had a friendly relationship, Hemings would have been the White House chef. Mm-hmm. I'm convinced of that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Had he been now, stayed alive. Yeah. yeah. Now, now, let's talk about cheese a little bit. Uh, what is the history of macaroni and cheese in the White House? So we know that at least uh, the earliest recording we have of macaroni and cheese in the White House is under Jefferson. Mm-hmm. Uh, on February 6, 1802, Jefferson serves it at a dinner party attended by a guy named Manasseh Cutler, mm-hmm. who was a congressman from Massachusetts. And he did not know what to make of macaroni and cheese. It was a new thing to him. He thought the uh, macaroni noodles were onions. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, and he said it was uh, strong and had a disagreeable taste. Oh, he didn't like it. No, nah, he oh, didn't. Oh, that's yeah. too bad. But he, he, he didn't understand what the dish was, so he asked the guy sitting next to him uh, what it was, and that guy was Meriwether Lewis of the Lewis and Clark Expedition. Uh-huh. And he knew? the dish to him, yeah. <laughs> Okay. And what about Daisy Bonner's souffle? Yeah. Cheese oh, souffle. I'm sorry. One more thing about oh, that. Oh, so okay. after that yeah. macaroni, that dinner where macaroni and cheese was served, yeah. the dinner party went to the East Room to look at the big block of cheese that Jefferson received as a gift from some farmers. Oh, right. And yeah. it was gigantic. It was gigantic. So that was entertainment, was to go look at a big cheese. Um, now, in terms of the cheese souffle, mm-hmm. um, on FDR's last day of life mm-hmm. uh, in Warm Springs, Georgia, and Warm Springs, Georgia had a mineral hot springs where uh, Roosevelt would go to get treatments for his polio. Mm-hmm. And when, he, uh, when, uh, when they go there, uh, he's sitting for a painting. And Daisy Bonner had decided to make a cheese souffle that was going to be served to him at 1.15 p.m. Uh, the cheese souffle, oh, but, but FDR has a fatal cerebral hemorrhage 
at 112. Okay. So he never gets to eat the souffle. But according <laughs> to Daisy Bonner, and this is a miracle for anybody who's made a souffle. Okay. That souffle did not fall for two hours until he was officially pronounced dead. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing. <laughs> yeah, it, but you find that hard to believe, don't you? Well, well, you know, I, I think someone could have made it up. Yeah, <laughs> but it's a nice, it's a nice idea. It's a nice yeah. idea. Now, um, one, your book is so full of little interesting facts. I had never heard of a lesser P. Right. Now, maybe other people have. A lesser pea is apparently a recipe that purposely leaves out important ingredients. Yeah, so you may not have heard of one, but I'm sure you've received one. Oh. (laughs) If you've you've ever asked anybody for a recipe. Yes, I keep cooking them. (laughs) Right. So, yeah, you know, there's some cooks that they just really don't want anybody to get the true recipe for something because I don't know if they think somebody's going to steal their thunder by making the dish as well as they do. And, you know, my plea to cooks is just have some confidence. Right, and, that you're doing uh, you it know, better. You're doing it better, and probably not the same people are going to be eating the recipe the second time. Right. And cooks, I think, bring something to a recipe, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. They put their own spin on it or whatever. Right. Well, every time you make something, it's different anyway. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, so cooks were known for just leaving things out. And Zephyr Wright was an example of a cook who would... If anybody would ask for a recipe, she would leave one or two things out on purpose Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then leave you to figure it out. Okay. And so that's called a lesser P, L-E-S-S-E-R-P-E. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Now, I love that your last recipe of the book comes from a young woman who won a seat at Michelle Obama's Kid State Dinner. With mm-hmm. her recipe, it looks pretty long and complicated, and you have a picture of that young woman. I think it's the last picture in the book, and she's adorable. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know if a lot of people know about this, but uh, starting in about 2012, I believe mm-hmm. Michelle Obama would have healthy eating or cooking competitions, um, and she would invite people from every state to submit a recipe, mm-hmm. kids. Mm-hmm. And the winning recipe, whoever won, uh, would get to go to the White House for what she called a kids' state dinner. So one person from every state? Yes, mm-hmm. had a winning recipe. And these recipes are actually compiled every year, mm-hmm. uh, and they're available online. Uh, and so uh, Kiana Farkish is mm-hmm. the woman to whom you're referring, the young woman to whom you're referring. Mm-hmm. She represented Colorado in 2014, and mm-hmm. so I was fortunate enough to connect with her and include her in the book. Because the reason I did that is I wanted to see to what extent the White House inspires young people today. Mm -hmm. Do they think about it? You know, is it, you know, I I just wanted to see what was going on. Well, but I think that Michelle Obama's mission uh, was centered on um, healthy food, child obesity. You know, she really focused for eight years on those issues. So I think she probably inspired and brought in a lot of, of children's interest. Yes, I think so. Uh, and I can tell you that Ms. Farkas is on fire for food justice issues. Uh, and oh, she's very good. bright. She How old is she herself. now? Yeah. How old is she now? So she, let's see, no, 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 she's probably 11 now. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, because that was a little while ago, yeah. Okay. Now, can you tell us a little bit about the story of your friend, uh, the sad story about Walter, how do you pronounce his last name? Scheib. Scheib. Now, he was another White House chef? Yes, he's not African-American, though, uh, but he was the White House executive chef Mm -hmm. for Bill Clinton, both terms, and Uh then the first term of George W. Bush. Mm -hmm. And um, And he helped you with your book. Yeah, he did. So I was just in the initial stages of my research, and I called him, and uh, I, I'm sorry, I emailed him, and he emailed and said, hey, feel free to call me. Mm-hmm. I called him, and we just talked for a long time, and he immediately understood what I was trying to do and the importance of the work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was a great resource. He could help answer a lot of kind of technical questions mm-hmm. and things you just never hear about the White House food operations. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, and we were planning on doing a film documentary on this subject, and uh, he tragically died while solo hiking uh, in the mountains outside of Taos, New Mexico. Oh, that is such a shame. Yeah, so uh, I really do miss his counsel, and, and that's mm-hmm. why I dedicated the book uh, in part to him, mm-hmm. uh, just because mm-hmm. of what what he meant to me in my research. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's nice. That's nice. Yeah. So you also, um, you wanted to talk about the future of the White House cooks? What are you thinking now? Well, you know, one thing is, could, could there ever be another African-American who runs the White House kitchen? And mm-hmm. the answer is yes, mm-hmm. because any president can pick whomever they want mm-hmm. um, right. for that job. Uh, a lot of working in the White House kitchen means being in the right place at the right time and in the right point in your career. Yeah. It seemed like uh, even with your stories, sometimes these people whose in-depth stories you had just fell into it, you know? Yeah. Oh, no, de- most definitely. Yeah. Most of the White House cooks have been accidental. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can't think of anybody who started their career saying, I want to be a White House chef. Mm-hmm. Now, that may not be the case any longer, right. um, given the rise of celebrity shelf culture and other mm-hmm. things and how much the Obamas have really raised the profile of White House food. Mm-hmm. Somebody may actually say, I want to be White House chef at one point. But again, <laughs> and go for it. Make, it, make yeah. a concerted effort. Well, did you have the story about Samuelson, who was, uh, was he offered the opportunity to just cook a state dinner, or did he turn down White House chef? So Marcus Samuelson, um, who's well-known on the Food Network and mm-hmm. is a chef now in Harlem, uh, mm-hmm. a very interesting story, born in uh, Ethiopia and then adopted by Swedish parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was offered the opportunity to cook the first state dinner for the Obamas. Ah. Uh, the person who you're thinking about who turned down the job was a man named Patrick Clark. Oh, right, right. Yeah, he was a well-known New York chef. And he who, was sort of, yeah. he would have lost a lot of money if he took it. Right, would have been a serious salary cut, and he had several kids. Right, <laughs> that he right. Was, you know, he and, had a large family. And I think you, the salary cut could have been $400,000. Uh, I know that I think he was definitely in the six figures, so he, <laughs> I think he was making like 200000 at the time. Oh, okay. And the White mm-hmm. House uh, salary, the White House chef's salary at that time was 58000 mm-hmm. And it's not like it's an easy job. No, it's not. Yeah, no, it's I mean, not. it's not like you get to go to bed early, like, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe earlier than a restaurant, but if things are hopping, you've got to hop. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Anyway, well, thank you so much. You know, uh, American Cheese Society is coming to Denver. Are you going to be able to visit with the ACS? 
Well, if you all will let me show my face around there, I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very fun conference. There's a lot of great seminars, and you'll be your book will be in the bookstore. You said right? Yes, I I, I do think they plan to sell my book. and there's a festival of cheese. I don't know if you like cheese, but there's a festival of cheese on our last night that is, uh, you know, has, you know, 600 cheeses cut up to taste. Oh, nice. <laughs> All right. And, and then the, four, the 400 fresh cheeses go in the morning or something. You know, I don't know what the breakdown is, but there's lots of cheese. So will there be uh, mac and cheese and cheese souffle, maybe? Oh, now that's an interesting question. There isn't that much cooked cheese at the Festival of Cheese, though sometimes on the outer edges of the room, some people cook things. Okay. (laughs) But we'll have to, uh, yeah, we're not that crazily into mac and cheese at the uh, ACS meeting because we eat so much uh, uncooked cheese, you can't start eating it cooked as well. Mm, gotcha. Okay. <laughs> anyway, okay. Well, thank you very much. This is Diane Stemple on Cutting the Curd. Adrian Miller's book is called The President's Kitchen Cabinet, and I recommend it to any history buff or African American history buff. Or it's a very interesting book. Thank you, Adrian, for being thank on the you. show. listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.